Welcome to Trade Policy Decoded, a podcast that shines a light on what's happening in trade policy in Australia and around the world. Brought to you by the University of Adelaide's Institute for International Trade and the Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment. Your hosts are Professor Peter Draper and Dr. Prue Gordon. Hello, Peter. Good morning, Prue. Pleasure to see you again. Great to see you too. So we're back for episode six of Trade Policy Decoded. And I'm super excited to be talking about this particular topic because it's so topical. We're looking at China, a bit of a China update, but it comes following Prime Minister Albanese's visit to China, also the removal of a number of trade sanctions by China. Currently, as we speak, President Biden and President Xi are meeting in San Francisco on the sidelines of the APEC meeting. So a lot is happening in this space, but most importantly, you've just been to China. So you've had the opportunity to witness the relationship with Australia and China firsthand and also what's happening on the ground in China. So let's begin by hearing what did you see and hear while you were at the Shanghai Import Export Expo in, in China? Great. Thanks, Prue. Yes, so I was at the CIIE, as it's called, in Shanghai last week. International business showed up. I think that's the first point to make. So that was interesting in terms of who was there. But in terms of the conversations I was having, I was really picking up three key themes, I would say. First relates to a fairly generalised perception and maybe gloom about the economic slowdown in China. And so the size of the market proposition, well, it's it's always going to be huge because it's China and everybody knows that. But the property bubble, the puncturing of that, the fears of a potential Japan-style deflation, the huge challenges that poses for local governments in China, and the need for massive fiscal reforms that that imposes on the central government, as well as, of course, of the local governments, that was all feeding through into the background conversation. Just on the optimistic side, I think that raises real possibilities for reforms down the track, particularly fiscal reforms, and maybe thinking about those huge amounts of subsidies sloshing through the Chinese system. Some of my university hosts were quite energized at the prospect, or not necessarily optimistic. So conflicting signals, but certainly a big reform agenda to be engaged. And then also related to the slowdown, it's very clear from recent data, notwithstanding the fact that the international private sector showed up at this exhibition, that FDI into China has really declined sharply in recent months. So so that's a real problem for exacerbating the China's economic slowdown. What are the reasons for it? There are many, but one of the more interesting conversations I had related to data security laws and particularly data transfer laws. And I was speaking to, let's just say, the CEO of a certain Western multinational that specializes in data transfers and due diligence associated with that. So actually, it's a data analytics company, a big data analytics company. Now, when these laws came in, they didn't know what they could do. And of course, they weren't alone. So suddenly they couldn't transfer data 
out of China anymore. And there's all sorts of security conditions around the data too. So they spoke to the local government, which is one of the big cities in China, and asked, what do we do? And the response was, just carry on doing what you were doing. Nobody knows what to do. So even within the Chinese government, they don't know how to deal with these data laws, the new data laws. And that's put a big chill on investment into that sector. And you put on top of that all the raids that the Chinese government has been conducting into due diligence firms. And of course, due diligence is essential for policing China-centered supply chains. And these are the reasons why FDI, I think, is declining. So there's a lot more uncertainty about where the Chinese system is moving. And a lot of that is just political. And the other thread I picked up just very quickly was related to the environmental portfolio. So China currently has an emissions trading scheme. It only covers coal. They're going to expand it to eight sectors. I'm not quite sure which those sectors are, but there would be heavy industry sectors, I'm sure. And they're also now starting to analyze the possibility of introducing a carbon border adjustment mechanism. So for Australian resources exporters to China, for instance, that could pose challenges, we shall see. And then on the flip side, they're also very worried about where the EU is going with its green industrial policies, and particularly the EU's Net Zero Industries Act. The EU's announced, I think we spoke about this previously, anti-subsidy investigations into imports of electric vehicles, but also potentially wind turbines and maybe other, other sectors. So lots going on in China. It was a fascinating time to be there. Yeah, I'm interested in your take on what you were seeing from the Australian side of the equation on the Australian debate. Very happy to talk about that. It stands in contrast to that description you've just given of the uncertainty for Western businesses in China at the moment. And I guess the deteriorating economic condition in China, because the Australia-China relationship following Prime Minister Albanese's visit is seen to be in so much better shape. There seemed to be a real thawing in the relationship. Some of the key outcomes from his meetings in China was the re-establishment of a number of pre-existing dialogues. So the annual leaders meeting between the Chinese Premier and the Australian Prime Ministers re-established the foreign and strategic dialogue, the strategic economic dialogue and the Joint Ministerial Economic Commission have all been re-established. They've agreed to hold the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement Joint Commission meeting and the Australia-China CEO Roundtable. They've agreed to restart all of these regular meetings, which is such a positive thing in terms of engaging with China having avenues to resolve differences, to raise problems in a really constructive way. So that's incredibly positive. They've also agreed to provide access to three to five year multi-entry visas. So there was a bit of a practical benefit out of the meetings as well, something that's going to help business in terms of managing their visas and their stays in, in either country. So that was incredibly positive and it's been depicted in the media is very positive and, and, as I said, a real thawing in the relationship. So that's the good news. I guess there are still some outstanding issues. There are still trade sanctions on lobster and wine, though the Chinese have agreed to review it, and beef. But about the wine issue, there's, there is debate in the Australian commentary on whether Australia should have agreed to suspend the WTO dispute and there is real controversy over whether that was a good thing or not. 
those that argue that it was a good thing say it was useful for smoothing the relationship and not continuing to antagonize China. Others say the rules are really all we've got when it comes to managing China and really great power trade relations. And if we don't invest in the rules and continue to force others to work with them, then we're really shooting ourselves in the foot. We're undermining our ability to go back to those institutions and reinvest in those institutions that have stood us in good stead for so long. So it's not that everything in the relationship is fixed, far from it. And the government's language, I think I see it as a bit of a return to hedging where we try and use the language that builds the relationship and and strengthens the relationship, but at the same time we prepare for less positive case scenarios. So I see it as, as a hedging approach, the one we had before, but there is more of an awareness of China's willingness to use trade tools and other tools to hurt us if they see fit. The only other thing I would say is a lot of commentary has focused on a shift in the government's language as contributing to an improvement in the relationship. That could be true, but at the same time, I have a very strong sense that we very much are at the mercy of the Chinese. When the Chinese want to turn off our relationship, it gets turned off. When the Chinese want to turn it on again for whatever reason, then it gets turned on. And what Australia does or doesn't do, unless we wanted to radically move away from some core values and some core policies, then there's not much we can do. So things that looking up, as I mentioned at the beginning, President Xi and President Biden are meeting as we speak. So I think the implications of that meeting for Australia as we say often in this podcast, plenty of fodder for another podcast. <laughs> Definitely. Just, just before getting to Biden and Xi, and I agree that the US-China dynamic is the ultimate determinant of the Australia-China dynamic. I completely agree with that. Just in terms of what I was observing at the conference vis-a-vis the Chinese messaging about Australia, couple of observations. So one is the Prime Minister's visit featured centrally on, well, it is the English versions of the Chinese state-run television station, CGTN. So it was very prominent, very prominently displayed and positively displayed, I would say. And he also became something of a social media star because of his run in Shanghai. I think the description one of the posts was this handsome boy from Australia, <laughs> Prime Minister. I don't know what he made of that, but I thought that was just interesting. It's, ha- it's hard to know whether that's a compliment or not. Look, I was called a handsome boy. so <laughs> <laughs> That must definitely be a compliment. <laughs> I hope so, but one doesn't quite know what to make of it. And obviously, from a cultural point of view, the Chinese do apply different filters. From that point of view, by the way, it's great to be back in China and interacting with ordinary Chinese people who see things, I think, quite differently to how the government sees things. But at the conference, the prime minister was the star billing. So he gave the first keynote speech that seemed to go down pretty well. There was no opportunity for questions, Q&A, etc. It's just a series of heads of state speaking. But then the next series of heads of state or deputy heads of state really struck me in terms of the messages China was sending. So firstly, important to understand, this is the premier Chinese international economic event in terms of showcasing international business and the attractiveness of the China market. So you would expect 
some serious heavy hitters in terms of heads of state to show up and be given a platform. But after the prime minister, it was the deputy president of Kazakhstan, then the deputy president of Iran, then the deputy leader of Cuba, and then the sole European representative was the president of Serbia. And then my own country, South Africa, the deputy president was the final bringing up the rear. So that was very clear political messaging at an ostensibly business-oriented conference. And I didn't quite know what to make of this. I don't know what all the assembled CEOs of major multinationals made of it either, because the speeches you can gather from this cast of characters was pretty anti-Western, pretty critical of what the West is up to on a variety of fronts from Ukraine to Israel, Gaza, etc. So I just found that a very strange way of messaging things. And also, clearly, from that point of view, Australia was an outlier. <laughs> mm. So thing messaging. And that really also points to the underlying US-China tension and the, the Biden Xi summit. So I'm really interested in your take on what the possibilities are for that summit, what it might lead to, if anything, and what that means for the Australia-China relationship. So what I'm hearing is that what she is hoping to get out of that bilateral meeting, as I said, happening now, is he's keen for the US, obviously, to remove their technology bans, the CHIPS Act, which restricts access for China to a range of high-level chip technology and chip-making technology, and their investment policies too. China, as you've mentioned, is keen to attract Western investment. So I, I think that is a key thing he's hoping to get out of the meeting, just to get the US to shift their language on China as a place, as a positive place to invest. Biden's focus is more on the military to military relationship and trying to re-establish communication more than the trade relationship. Obviously, Taiwan and South China Sea will be issues in that meeting, regulation of AI, Middle East, what's happening in the Middle East and Ukraine. So I think while Xi's focus will be much more on the economic issues, I think Biden's focus is going to be more on these military and political issues. That said, climate change would be the outlier, and I think that's an area where both of them will be keen to engage, to identify ways to cooperate. So I think they're the key areas. A lot of people aren't expecting big announceables or concrete outcomes. The fact that they are meeting after such a long period is a, people are seeing as a positive development. The fact that so many high-level cabinet ministers from the Biden administration and their Chinese counterparts have met over the last couple of months, people have seen as a positive development, obviously leading up to this meeting. I know business is keen for the temperature in the relationship to go down. So the meeting itself is a positive, but nothing hard and fast is expected to come out of it. I would be surprised if, if either side gave much at this stage yeah, so I think that goes to the state of intention by President Biden at their last meeting to establish a flaw under the relationship. And what we've seen since then over the last year is a succession of high-level bilateral visits by U.S. cabinet ministers to China and by Chinese cabinet ministers to the U.S. as well. And then just in this morning's news, they did announce a, an understanding on the climate change talks in the, in the build-up to COP28. So that's positive. 
media readout of it is there's not much to see here, but the fact that we have it is good, which I agree. It contributes mm. to the to the positive atmospherics. I think maybe one set of news on the margins of the APEC meetings relates to the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which we've previously spoken about on our podcast. And so there the news, I think, was not entirely unexpected, but still disappointing that the US has effectively paused the so-called Pillar 1, which is the trade pillar under the IPEF umbrella. And that's because of domestic political concerns about the digital trade agenda. And we also saw that show up in the US's posture towards the WTO talks on establishing an e-commerce or digital trade agreement. So they've pulled out of those as well. So clearly that's politically very difficult in the United States. We already have the pillar two, we spoke about that last time, and then pillar three on the energy or clean energy transition. Those talks are continuing. They're becoming more and more challenging from what I'm seeing in terms of the political messaging and largely around some developing country members of IPF pushing back on US environmental standards demands. And what they seem to be saying is, well, you want us to raise our standards, but where's the market access? And of course, there is no market access. It's always been, you raise your standards, you get to benefit from investment package, which is an interesting way of thinking about an agreement. And then the final pillar four, which is about transparency and anti-corruption, that's really bedding down the way I see it, OECD codes through IPEF members. I understand that's continuing as well, but I don't know what the prospects are for ultimate success. So IPEF still lives. It's still bubbling along in two of the remaining three pillars, but the one meaty pillar, which is the trade one, that's suspended, I suspect, until after presidential mm-hmm. elections. And of course, the Biden administration and their USTR Catherine Tai are coming under a lot of pressure from Congress on IPEF as well. A lot of complaints about Congress not being adequately consulted. And again, the two different arguments that the US should be giving market access in order to create meaningful trade agreements and the others that the US is giving away too much through avenues such as such as IPEF. So, and of course, I think I often think domestic pressures have far greater impact on how the US in particular, but but pretty much all countries, how they respond internationally. So they, they're fighting on two fronts by the look of it on IPEF. But I think from our discussion on the supply chain pillar, I'm not sure that there's a lot there. If they're going to start using language like parties intend to, again, throughout the text, then as I said, Emperor's New Clothes, there's not much to see here. That is the danger of IPEF. I, I completely agree. In, any prospects for the APEC trade talks? Uh, I haven't been following them closely, I must say. But, uh... So, you know, APEC, what actually happens in the formal sessions is always such a minor part of the APEC meeting. It's what happens in the margins. The trade ministers will be meeting at APEC on the sidelines, and a key issue there will be CPTPP and whether China will be allowed to enter negotiations to join the CPTPP. The messaging we're getting is that there is no willingness to change the standards and that China would need to meet the very high standards if it wanted to try and enter the CPTPP. It's interesting in the joint leaders statement from the Albanese and Lee's meeting, they talk a lot about RCEP and the importance of RCEP and wanting to 
work to progress implementation and get the most out of RCEP. But we know China is very keen to join CPTPP. So my expectation is that trade ministers meeting in the sidelines of APEC will basically keep the status quo in terms of China's membership as long as they can meet the standards, but we're not going to lower the standards. And also they'll ensure that the requirement that it has to be a consensus decision of all CPTPP members for accession negotiations to be launched. I don't expect that would not be changed either. So I think that's going to be a key issue discussed at APEC in terms of trade. In the margins, yes. Agreed. And then just coming back finally to where we started, it's not just Australia that's sensitive to China's CPTPP accession, of course. So Japan has also been subject to Chinese economic coercion several times, and most recently around the release of the Fukushima water into the sea and the total Chinese ban on imports of Japanese fisheries products. And this is despite the IAEA having signed off that this is safe to do. And then, of course, Canada. And I think Canada is in a much more difficult place in its bilateral relationship with China than we are. So we shouldn't feel alone, I guess, is the the relatively upbeat message. But that also points to, as you were saying, the potential problems with the hedging strategy. So the real question with the hedging strategy is, in my mind, has the leopard changed its spots? (laughs) And Being African, I don't believe leopards do change their spots. So I'm sceptical about that. Hopeful, but but sceptical. And if I were business, I think I would also be looking to hedge accordingly. Yes, and that's an interesting point. With this shift in language with the Albanese government, it makes it difficult for business, I think, to get a clearer picture as to whether it is really risky to be trading and investing in China or not. There are a number of arguments that Australia should be more closely integrating its national security policy with its economic policy. And I had a great discussion with Justin Bassey at the Fringe event at the Australian Institute for International Affairs National Conference earlier this week about whether that should actually happen, whether we should be integrating national security policy with economic policy. I thought it would be a terrible idea in so many levels in terms of economic efficiency, in terms of the ability of business to innovate and to contribute to productivity and, and on a whole range of levels thought it was a terrible idea and Justin obviously thought it was a very good idea but I think the whole hedging approach if we're not going to go down that track where government is actively intervening in markets in more extensive ways than it is at the moment then the only way to really help business manage these geostrategic challenges is by giving them clear signals and clear messages as to what the risks of trading and investing in China really are. I think with a hedging strategy, those messages are much less clear. And I had assumed that businesses trading with China would read between the lines when it comes to so much political messaging from the Australian government on China. But I recently sat down with a group of businesses, large and small, a couple of multinationals, who I thought would absolutely be reading between the lines and understand the risks. But it just blew me away. Some of them did, but many of them were not really tracking what is happening in the global economy at the moment. And this huge shift towards industry policy, they're very focused on the weeds of their business, their customers and their products. 
So they were sort of sitting there with their eyes wide open, astounded at hearing some of the big shifts that have happened in the last couple of years. And also what's happening in China in terms of some of the developments you mentioned earlier on in the podcast, businesses being raided and uncertainty around new data security laws in in China. So it's hard to know whether it's better to have unclear language on China. And in doing that, you're aiming to keep the temperature in the relationship down or be clearer, therefore send stronger messages to business so they can then cost in geopolitical risk more accurately. But at the same time, you risk raising tensions in the relationship. So on that national security trade policy nexus, I actually like the US framing, which is small yard, high fence. But of course, over time, the yard widens, perhaps the fence gets higher. <laughs> and that's really about core national security issues. Those should be subject to national security considerations for sure. And that affects certain supply chains, certain products, etc. particularly dual-use products, but also critical minerals, for example. The rest, which is the bulk of international trade and investment, that should proceed as more. That, that's my view. We need to send a clear message on that. However, if I'm a business, that's at my risk, I think. And then you need to be aware of what the risks are. Now, maybe it's difficult, I think it is difficult actually, for politicians, particularly the prime minister, the foreign minister, etc., to clearly articulate what those risks are, because imagine the response from the Chinese side, right? But for groups like us and podcasts like this, I think that that's the kind of role we can play, clearly setting out what those risks might be mm. for those businesses. Mike, mm. I agree about the tall fence and small yard. It's just, I think it's a mesh fence rather than a solid fence. Yes. And when you're talking about chips, that goes into so many different other sectors which aren't within the fence. So things seep out of that yard and they have much broader implications. But also we're finding... They keep building out the fence. Mm. So, yes, I agree. There are some areas where it's absolutely vital that the government plays a much more hands-on role in managing sectors, but just interested watching how porous this fence is and what uncertainty that creates in the market and then where they keep building out the fence in different places. I think for me, clean energy technology is a key area where you'd think there's real opportunity for the US and China to cooperate there, but it's being really turned into a strategic sector that the US wants to develop its domestic production facility and a lot of this clean energy technology. And that's feeding into this national security debate and it's really being brought within the fence. It is indeed. Maybe a last point on this, you know, how wide is that yard? So the Europeans through the Net Zero Industry Act are consciously bringing renewable energy technologies and clusters of technologies into the yard and putting the fence around them. So what they'll do under that Net Zero Industries Act, which is what China has done before, so again, we're all becoming more Chinese, is they're going to be raising local content thresholds very high. Why? Because they want to build resilience, another buzzword, they want to de-risk the supply chain. So a relatively small yard, high fence going up in Europe as well. And that's a major source of tension now between Chinese and the Europeans. And I look back on this and I say to my, I said to my Chinese hosts, 
in a sense, we're all copying you, right? You, you guys started this. What, what did you expect? <laughs> and I didn't really have an answer to that. Absolutely. It's a great point. It's a great point to end on, actually, Peter. So thank you again. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. So I look forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks while you are in Vietnam. Sounds great, Prue. Looking forward to that. Brilliant. Thank you, Peter. Okay. Thank you for joining us for Trade Policy Decoded. Check out the Institute for International Trade and Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment websites for the recordings of all podcasts and to see what's coming up.